Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, So grateful for all the time that our students and children and families put into uh, having these Christmas programs each year. This has uh, become one of those things that is uh, just really enjoyable for myself personally, and I know for those in our church family, it's become a highlight of the Christmas season. Uh, Before we get into the message for this morning, I want to give you just a very brief update on the Be Rich numbers that have been coming in. If you're here this morning and you have no idea what that is, uh, let me just give you a brief uh, explanation of that. Each year, we do an end-of-the-year stewardship drive. And so what we do as a leadership team is we look to the year ahead and we say, okay, where is... Where do we sense God wanting us to invest in ministry or uh, invest finances in next year? And then we bring that need to you as our church family and ask you to give over and above your regular donations to help uh, fund uh, that in order to uh, make that investment. And so uh, this last year, uh, (laughs) we had some unexpected roof repairs. We were having our roof redone and found out that the flashing was not done properly or wasn't watertight. And so there was a bunch of water going underneath our shingles that had rotted out like a big portion of the subroof, which uh, in a building that's 18,000 square feet is a lot of surface area. So it's a very expensive, unexpected expense. And so we set out to raise money this year to help cover the cost of that unexpected expense. And we set out to raise $30,000, knowing that that was uh, totally a stretch for a church of our size. And uh, we set that out there and said, okay, we're going to try and raise 30000 And anything that we don't raise uh, towards the cost of that total project, we're going to have to take out a small construction loan in order to uh, fund the rest of that. Uh, as of this morning, we have raised $22,725. So we're almost there, friends, Okay. Uh, there's still a little bit of room there. So if you're like me, I'll be honest, we haven't given to be rich yet this year. (laughs) Uh, I know that there's many of you who like in the last week of the year, as you're looking at your sort of year end finances and stuff, you make a calculation sort of at the last moment. And if you're like me and our family, uh, we just encourage you this week to spend time, uh, bringing this before the Lord and asking what God do you want me to contribute towards this? And just to remind you, uh, we don't say this often enough. God doesn't care how much you give. We don't care how much you give. We're not in this to, uh, to, you know, wring money out of you. What we want is for you and God to come to an agreement on what you should give and for you to give with a heart that is full of joy. That's what we want. And so God doesn't care if you give $50. God doesn't care if you give $5,000. God doesn't care how much you give. It's not about that. Um, But it's going to take all of us for us to be able to cover this expense. And so we ask you to uh, please... Pray and ask God how he would have you contribute to that uh, at the end of this year. Uh, With that, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll spend some time looking at this passage this morning. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sound of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. 
God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Father, this morning we once again come into your presence with shouts of joy and gratitude and thankfulness for your continued provision for our church family as well as for your kingship and reign over all things. You are most high. You are awesome. You are king over all the earth. You are seated on the throne. You are the one who is worthy of worship, worthy of adoration, worthy of praise. All the nations, God, all peoples belong to you. And this morning we want to, as a church family, experience what it means to be a people that are fully devoted to you. So teach us, God, as we look at this passage about your birth in Bethlehem as our king. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's common for people to experience the same event or the same events in very different ways. And many times, what is good news for one person is bad news for another. Think about this economically. I just want you to imagine with me that it is the year 2008. We're in the middle of a recession as a country, and within the last uh, 12 months or so, you purchased a new house. And because of the economic downturn, you've lost your job, and now you're in the process of losing this house that you maybe like just a little bit overextended yourself to get into in the first place. And so this economic recession is like not enjoyable at all for you. Now imagine that at the exact same time, there is an investor with a significant amount of liquid assets on hand, which enables this person to go and buy all sorts of stock at like bottom <laughs> bargain basement prices. So the, the, the events of that economic recession can be experienced by two different people in very different ways. For one of those people, it's good news. For one of those people, it's bad news. Think about this in the realm of education. Imagine you're in a class and your teacher or your professor says, hey, uh, just so you know, sometime next week, could be any time next week, there's going to be a pop quiz. So I'm not telling you when it is so that you'll just be ready. Now imagine that there's one student who says, okay, uh, the smart thing to do is to assume that this pop quiz is going to happen on Monday. And so I'm going to be prepared for it to be on Monday. And Monday comes and goes and the quiz doesn't come. And you're like, okay, uh, I'm going to assume the test is going to be on Tuesday because that's the smart thing to do. Imagine there's also another student who says, you know, I'm like pretty sure that it's going to be Friday afternoon when this test comes. Lo and behold, Tuesday comes, and so does the pop quiz, and you totally bomb it because you weren't prepared for it, right? That pop quiz is experienced by those two people in very, very different ways. We can see this vocationally. Imagine that you are a part of an organization, or you're a part of a team, or you work in a department, and there's someone on your team who's like just a rock star. This person is dependable. This person, you have a great relationship with them. You just connect, you click with them. They pull more than their weight in the organization. And imagine that that person puts in their two-week notice, their letter of resignation, because they're going to take a job at a different company. You're obviously like super bummed about this. 
Now, imagine if you are like the one person in that organization or the one person on that team who's had this sort of like awkward, ongoing relational tension with that person. You're not all that sad about this person putting in their letter of resignation, are you? No, in fact, you may be a little bit like uh, relieved. (laughs) You wouldn't say this out loud, but maybe you're like a little bit joyful. that, like, oh, finally, this person is going to be out of here. Right? So uh, that person putting in their two-week notice is experienced by different people in very different ways. And of course, we could go around and list a hundred other examples of this, but we all know it's true that it's common for people to experience the same events in very different ways. And that's exactly what we see in our passage this morning. As we look at the Magi and as we look at King Herod, we see them responding to the exact same event, the birth of King Jesus. They respond to that event in very different ways. And so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at that passage and seeing that played out. And then we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time thinking about what, uh, what do we take away from this, uh, from this account here. So as we look at our passage, the first thing that we can see is we can see Herod's response. Let's start there. We'll look at Herod's response, then we'll look at the Magi's response and make some takeaways from it. So Herod's response. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. If you have a Bible in front of you, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. So there's a lot going on in this passage, and this, uh, this story is very familiar to many of us, but there's things in here that if we stop and think about it for like just a minute are a little bit puzzling. Uh, one of the first questions that uh, you know, maybe comes to your mind is like, what are magi? We don't use uh, the language of magi like ever in modern day times. And so it's like, well, we see magi here and we see them in historically inaccurate nativity scenes as our, uh, as our students brought out for us. Uh, but who are these magi? Uh, one commentator, his name is Grant Osborne, did a really great job of summarizing it this way. He said, the magi were a priestly cast of magicians and astrologers who were wise in interpreting the stars. Okay, so what that means is that these magi, they were astronomers, meaning that they were very good at like observing the movement of stars and planets and all these heavenly bodies. They were really good at just taking note of all of that. But they weren't just astronomers, they were astrologers, meaning that they ascribed a kind of spiritual or mystic meaning to the movement of the stars. Does that make sense? So they were uh, this priestly cast of magicians and astrologers in all likelihood from the realm of Persia, which is sort of like modern-day Iraq, Afghanistan area, a couple thousand miles away from Jerusalem. So there were this priestly cast of magicians and astrologers, and our best guess is that as they were observing the stars and as they were sort of in however they did it, in all the ways that they derived meaning from the stars, as they were doing that, God revealed to them that there was something unique about whatever celestial thing they were seeing. And so they respond by saying, okay, we're going to go find this king because our, our, our astrology is telling us that what we're seeing is very important and it's related to the birth of this king of the Jews. So we're going to go find that king and we're going to uh, bow down and pay homage to this king and we're going to bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and give it to this king. So they go, and of course they go to the place where you'd expect to find a king, right? They go to a palace. 
They go to Herod's palace. And, you know, as I read this, they strike me as it, it feels a little bit naive. It feels a little bit like they're uh, sort of ignorant, right? They go to King Herod and they say, so where's this new king of the Jews? And it's like, well, who thought that was a good idea to go like to King Herod and, they, and say that? <laughs> They weren't expecting Herod to like fly off the handle at them. And I think the reason is because they, this is, this is totally a guess. I can't prove this. There's no verse for it. But I think they thought that the, that the child who was born was born to Herod. They thought that the king who was born was next in line to Herod and that Herod would be, you know, welcoming these magi as they came to celebrate the, the son who was born to him, who one day is going to ascend and take his place on the throne So they thought that this was going to be this wonderful experience and they get there and they had no idea exactly what it was that they were walking into. Look at Herod's response. Verse three, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Magi was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then in verse seven, it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship. So Herod's response here that we see is he's greatly disturbed. He's uh, in toil over this message that he has heard, that there's this new king who's been born. And what I find interesting is that the passage says that Herod was disturbed. And it's like, well, we can all understand why. Why was all of Jerusalem disturbed with King Herod? King Herod was viewed by the Jewish people as something of an imposter. Because he was put over them by the Roman Empire. And he was half Jewish, half Idumean. So he wasn't like fully Jewish. And he was put in power by the dominant Roman Empire who crushed them and taxed them into oblivion. So they would be really excited about the birth of a new king. The reason that they are disturbed is because they know the kind of person that Herod is. There are sources outside of the Bible that tell about how paranoid Herod was, especially in the later years of his life. And how King Herod had people from his own family, wives, children, and his own closest political circle. He had people from all of those spheres of his life murdered and killed because he was paranoid that they were doing something behind his back. And so this is the kind of person he is. And of course, the people in Jerusalem are like, okay, this guy, we know that he's, he's volatile. We know that he's paranoid. We know that he's like, you know, looking around every corner, thinking that everyone's against him. And so if he finds out that this new king has been born, we don't know what he's going to do. And we don't know what we are going to experience as a result of his anger. So all of Jerusalem along with King Herod, are greatly disturbed. And we come to find out, as you heard read, their fears were not off base. He called the religious leaders in and said, hey, so where is this king, this Messiah of yours going to be born anyways? Remind me of that. And they say, well, in Bethlehem. And so what he does is he tells the Magi, hey, I want you to go find out where this little baby is and then come back and report to me because I, quote unquote, wink, wink, want to worship him too. But we know that his plan was, I want to know where this kid is so that I can have this kid killed. Herod is responding to the birth of King Jesus. 
with anger and fear and paranoia to the point where later, when the Magi trick him and go back by a different way, he says, I'm going to have all of the baby boys under two years old in that vicinity killed because that's about how old Jesus was at the time. And if I just kill all the baby boys, I'll make sure that I kill whoever this you know, new king is. And so this is the kind of person he was. This is how volatile he was responding to the birth of Jesus with fear and anger and paranoia because the birth of Jesus was a threat to his reign. Right? The birth of King Jesus was a threat to his reign. He was the king of the Jews. And so he was willing to do whatever he had to do in order to eliminate that threat. So that's how Herod responded. Let's look at how the Magi respond. That's the second thing we see in this passage is the Magi's response. Look in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we're told that after King Herod gives them this command to come back to him and report where this child is, they go on their way. And when they saw this star appear again in the sky and it led them to the house where Jesus was, it says they were overjoyed. They were filled with joy and wonder as they saw the star. Imagine what it would have been like to receive that knock on your door. I don't have a verse for this, but here's what I think this was like. Because it would be just, you know, as I read, as I read the Bible, I see, you know, this is kind of the way God works. It would be so appropriate for the day that the Magi showed up at their house for things to be in total chaos and disarray. Everyone's disheveled, right? There's dishes piled up in the sink, and there's laundry strewn about on the floor. And as the door knocks, Mary's in the middle of, like, changing a massive blowout of a diaper. That's exactly how I envision this scene happening. And they open the door and they find these magi. Imagine what that would have been like to be there in that moment and, to, and just a shock on your face. And imagine more than that. Imagine what it would be like to hear from these magi, to listen to them tell you the story of how they got to your house in the first place. Okay? Three years ago, almost, Mary and Joseph got these messengers, these angels that came to them in dreams and said, hey, by the way, you're going to have a baby. I know that you, you know, you have no reason to be pregnant right now, but you're going to have a baby and this baby's going to be the son of God. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to be a king. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the savior. He's going to rule and reign over all creation for all time on David's throne. That's who your child's going to be. And so they've lived for years with this understanding of, okay, this is what the angel told us about who our son is. And then you have these magi who come from thousands of miles away who have no way of ever knowing who you are, who have no way of ever knowing what's happened to you in your life and the story that you heard from the angels. And they come knocking on your door and they say, hey, uh, so as we were like looking at the stars and as we were sort of, you know, divining meaning from the movement of the stars, we got this message that said there's going to be this new king of the Jews that's going to be born. And so we came to worship this new king. 
And all of a sudden, these magi who come literally out of nowhere entirely corroborate what you know to be true. They completely confirm all the promises that God has made to you. Imagine what that would have been like to be there in that moment, in that house, when the magi arrive. And so they come inside the house, and they bow down, and they give these gifts, which are, um, many, many scholars believe, uh, symbols of royalty. These are the kinds of gifts that you would give to a king. Very expensive, very precious uh, metals, you know, gold, very expensive perfumes and frankincense and myrrh. These are the kinds of things that you would give to someone who is royalty. So that's how the Magi respond. Notice the contrast in how the Magi and how Herod respond to the birth of King Jesus. The Magi are overjoyed They're filled with wonder and worship and awe at this little baby. And Herod is greatly disturbed. He's paranoid. He's living out of this place of self-preservation. And he wants to have this threat eliminated. They respond in the exact opposite way. King Herod and the Magi present for us really the only two options that exist of ways that we can respond to the same events that they responded to. The announcement that the baby who was born in Bethlehem, who laid in the manger 2,000 years ago, that baby is the king over all creation. He's the king of the universe. He has rightful rule and authority over all people in all places in all times, and we owe him everything. There's only two ways to respond to that message. One is we can respond like the Magi with worship, And the other way is we can respond like Herod with self-preservation. So think about this. Like Herod, we can respond to the birth of King Jesus with self-preservation. There's a lot of different ways that this can look. Uh, Let me just name a couple ways that we can express this kind of self-preservation. One thing is we can look at Jesus, and we can look at what the Bible says about Jesus and his being king over all, and his being king over us, and how we owe him everything, and he's the one who is in charge Right? He's the one who has the authority uh, over us. We can look at that message and we can say, you know, uh, I hear that, but I really like to call the shots in my life. I really like being the one who can make my own choices. I really like having autonomy. You know, I really like my standard of living and the life that I have going for me. And I know that if I follow this man, Jesus, I know what he says about how I should spend my money. I know what he says about material possessions and about finances and about some of the, you know, the, the behaviors and the pleasures and the experiences and the entertainment that I like to consume. I know what he says, and it's going to mean I've got to change everything. And so, you know, I, I like the life I have going for me. No, thank you. And we can respond with a kind of self-preservation that looks like we resist Jesus as our king because he's a threat to the life that we have going for us. That's one way that we can respond. And it may be that for some of you here this morning, that may be what is keeping you from coming to Christianity or from for coming to follow Jesus, is you just say, you know, it's just, it's too costly. I, 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 I like being the one who's in charge of my own life. No thanks. Another way to respond is, like also some of you may be here today and you may be saying to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm not like Herod. I'm friendly towards Jesus. I like Jesus. You know, there's a lot of stuff that Jesus says that it's like, yeah, I can really get on board with that. 
you know, I like this man, Jesus. I like a lot of the stuff he said. And obviously there's things that I'm just like, yeah, I can't go there with him. I, I don't really believe this, or I think that this is, you know, antiquated or outdated or whatever. But, you know, there's certain things that I really like about Jesus and I'll accept those things. And there's certain things I really don't like about Jesus and I'll just leave those things behind. And if that's you this morning, I just want to, as lovingly as I can, say that that kind of lukewarm response is just another way of keeping Jesus at arm's length. That's just another form of self-preservation because Jesus isn't ultimately the one who is calling the shots in your life. You are, right? You get to just pick and choose whatever you want Jesus to be for you and not actually come to Jesus, let Jesus tell you what terms on which you need to receive him from him. So that's another way that we can respond to the birth of King Jesus with a kind of self-preservation. And the rest of us are not off the hook. The rest of us are not off the hook because for every single one of us who does follow Jesus, we all have areas in our life that resemble Herod. We all have areas in our life where, we res- where, where it resembles the same kind of self-preservation. There may be certain sins that we nurse. There may be certain Uh, areas of compromise in our life where where we justify and we compromise and we say, you know, well, no one really sees this. This isn't really a public thing. This doesn't really affect anyone else. You know, like no one's getting hurt by this. And so like, I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing this because it feels good because I like it. And there's areas of compromise. Maybe you have places in your life that you just don't want God to touch. There may be areas like your finances Where you're like, you know, God, you can have pretty much control over anything in my life. Just like, just don't touch my finances. Just don't touch my sexuality. Just don't touch this area of my life. Everything else is on limits, but these kinds of things are off limits. And it may be because it's too difficult. It may be because it's too costly. It may be because you've tried before and you've failed. And so you just think, you know, there's just no way I can even overcome this anyway. So why bother trying? And all of those are ways of relating to Jesus as our king with a kind of self-preservation. Where we pick and choose. We say, yeah, I'll let God come in and like really work me over in this area of my life, but over here, don't touch that. That's mine. And so whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, every single one of us has areas of our life where we come to Jesus and we respond to Jesus with a kind of self-preservation. And friends, what I want to suggest this morning is that God wants us to have a healthy kind of disgust for every place in our life that resembles Herod. God desires us to have a healthy level of disgust and hatred for all of those areas in our life where we sense a shred of self-preservation. God wants us instead to respond like the Magi. So we can respond like Herod, to the birth of King Jesus with self-preservation, or we can, like the Magi, we can respond to the birth of King Jesus with worship. It would be a nice story, wouldn't it? If the Magi showed up to the house where Jesus was and they bowed down and they, you know, paid homage to him. And then they got up and they, you know, said all kinds of nice things about Mary and like, you know, how lucky you are to be like the, you know, the mother of a king. Isn't that great? And they said all kinds of nice things about Jesus and then they left. That'd be nice. That'd be a nice story. But without the costliness of their gifts, their homage meant very little. Without the costliness of 
opening up their treasures and giving to King Jesus what he deserves, what he is worthy of, their words of, oh, we recognize Jesus as a king, those words don't have any teeth. Right? Those words ring hollow. It was their, what they did with their bodies in coming thousands of miles to come find this child and in physically with their bodies kneeling down before him and physically prostrating their body. It was with their bodies that they proved what they believed to be true about who Jesus was. It was with their possessions as they opened up their treasures and as they, they took these very costly, very expensive gifts and they gave it to King Jesus. Their bodies, what they did with their bodies and what they did with their treasures proved what they believed to be true about Jesus. And friends, the same exact thing is true of us. To put it just uh, bluntly, if I may, talk is cheap. Especially in a cultural environment where it is still largely socially acceptable to be a follower of Jesus. Saying that you are a Christian means very little. It's easy to do that. Lots of people do that. Lots of people say, you know, I go to church every once in a while and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm friendly towards Jesus and I'm, you know, I, I like to consider myself a good person. And like, it, it's easy to say that. But like the Magi... What we do with our bodies, what we do with our actions and our behavior and our character, the kind of lives we live, that's what demonstrates what we truly believe to be true about who Jesus is. It's what we do with our possessions. It's what we do with our treasures, the things that are most valuable to us. Do we cling to those things? Do we keep them tight to our chest or do we open our treasures to Jesus and say, everything is yours? It doesn't mean he's going to take everything but it means we come with a heart posture of saying, if you want it, it's yours. I'm willing to give up anything that you ask me to do because you're worth it. What we do with our bodies and what we do with our treasure, that's what proves what we believe to be true about Jesus. Not only that he's just objectively the king, which he is, right? <laughs> objectively, he's ruling and reigning in heaven over all creation and we owe him everything, right? Objectively, that's true. But he's worthy of our worship. He doesn't just deserve it all. He's worthy of our treasures. He's worthy of every ounce of our worship and our devotion. He's worth every bit of our treasure. And so we've got this choice before us. All of us here today have a choice. Will we respond to the news of the birth of King Jesus? Will we respond like Herod with self-preservation or will we respond like the Magi in worship and in devotion to King Jesus? Friends, the good news is that he is worthy of our worship. He deserves every ounce of worship and devotion that we can muster up. And then some. He's worthy of our worship. Yes, he calls us to do hard things. Jesus calls us to die. That's a hard thing, right? Jesus calls us, he says, you know, if you want to find your life, what do you have to do? 
you got to lose it. If you want to truly live, what do you have to do? You have to die. You have to die to yourself and follow me. And that's a hard thing that Jesus says. And when we hear that message, our, our natural impulse is to say, is to respond with a kind of self-preservation. He calls us to do hard things. But when we lay down our lives and give up our lives to follow him in obedience, we do so because Jesus gave up his life for us. In other words, we don't go out and respond to the announcement of the birth of King Jesus by saying, okay, I'm going to go try really hard to do this and to do this and to be a good person, and then God's going to love me and accept me. What we do and how we respond to King Jesus is out of, it's a joyful response to what God has already done for us in Jesus. Yes, he calls us to die. Yes, he calls us to lay down his life, but we do so in response to him already having died for us. We do so in response to him already having laid down his life for us. Jesus is our servant king. Yes, he came to rule and to reign over all creation, and he does right now. But praise God, he didn't just come as our conquering Lord King overall. He came, as we've been talking about in this series, as our servant king. And he laid down his life for us. Jesus is our servant king. And he is worthy of every ounce of our worship. And so this morning, uh, my invitation for you is just very simple. Worship Jesus as your king. You can take that home with you this week and sit with God and ask God, okay, what is it, how do you specifically want me to respond to this? God, what areas of my life do I have that resemble the kind of attitude of King Herod? self-preservation. You can take that home and you can spend time sitting with the Lord this week or over the next few weeks and just processing that. You can write that down on a piece of paper and just take note of it. But one of the ways we can respond this morning, just very tangibly, is we come to the communion table and we get to come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in faith, believing that Jesus came as our king, not just to be like a cute little baby in a manger that we all just kind of fawn over and we get all, you know, a bunch of warm fuzzies about it. He came to be our king who would grow up and who would give his life in place of ours. And so we get to remember and celebrate King Jesus this morning, that he's our servant king. And there's no better way to do that than to receive his broken body and shed blood. And so we get to come to the communion table now And as we do so each week, I'm going to invite you to take just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection, and then we will come celebrate Christ at the table.